Dr. Tony Hinton. Formerly uh, Dr. Tony Hinton on Twitter, but not so much right now anymore. It's fantastic to be here with you today. Um, you're always smiling, so I think I was going to say with commiserations, but I don't think you're that bothered. But, it, uh, you know, just to kick off uh, the Together Talks podcast today, um, I think we need to just address the first thing that's just happened really with you. And we could talk about it a bit later on, but you're very popular on Twitter. You do a lot of stuff on a lot of broadcasters. We often see you on um, Talk TV, on GB News, on other you know mainstream platforms in the news and press. Uh, and... You're a 30 years surgeon. You've been, you know, you've been a surgeon for, you know, and um, you were pulled off. What what was that all about? Indeed. Well, first, I'll, let me just thank you for inviting me along to give this uh, interview with you. Um, I think that it's, it's a fantastic idea. I've seen a few already and they're going great guns. Um, last week, I was actually on holiday, relaxing, pretty much ignoring Twitter completely which you do have to do from time to time yeah. to keep your own sanity you need to take a break from it and i just happened to be at this spa and i spotted a poster on the wall and it had got conditions that people shouldn't use the sauna and one was people with heart conditions and the other was pregnant women and it just came into my mind there's lots of things that we say pregnant women shouldn't do no alcohol, no raw eggs, no unpasteurized milk or cheese, um, a very limited number of medications, as few as you can possibly get away with, because you never know what the risks might be. Right. I mean, look back at what happened with thalidomide. Um, I was born in 1960. My mom had terrible, terrible morning sickness. She was offered thalidomide. And she was one of these people that had no alcohol, no medication. She took nothing while she was pregnant. I was her first uh, child. And so she probably took extra care. And it wasn't until four years after that that the problems with thalidomide came out. And I thought, isn't this strange that we're saying these pregnant ladies can't do all these various things? And almost ultra caution. And then I tweeted that picture. And at the top, I just put but we can give a safe and effective, in inverted commas, genetic injection. Now, I would say it was a factual picture. We can give these injections to pregnant women. I didn't say was that a good thing or a bad thing. I just left it for people to ponder on that incongruity, if you like, that difference between those two things. We're so careful about many things that you perhaps think, well, is it really that bad if a pregnant lady has a bit of unpasteurized cheese? But we're quite happy to give these injections, which haven't been around very long. And in fact, in the Pfizer data that came out, it became apparent that their own recommendation to the FDA in America was that it shouldn't be given to pregnant women because they hadn't done the studies. There are a few people that got pregnant during the trial, just happened to get pregnant, but nowhere near enough numbers to draw any conclusions. And for that, I got booted off Twitter. As a, it says a permanent suspension, I have, I have put in an appeal, just explaining that tweet. Um, and in fact, for the first time this morning, I actually looked at the Twitter rules and actually there aren't that many Twitter rules. And I don't think I've ever broken 
any of them. Right. So I think I need to take it further. But I've switched most of my social media stuff now to that uh, Getter platform, G-E-T-T-R. And I'm on there as Dr. Tony Hinton. Okay. Um, well, people will definitely have a look at you on Getter, <clears throat> G-E-T-T-R, uh, Dr. Tony Hinton. I mean, what you've just described is uh, a really prob enormous problem currently, which is that when you ask questions... Or indeed, when you put different views forward, um, things are taken down. Now, this is before we have the government's proposed online safety bill, which is going to san impose sanctions uh, and enormous fees and fines uh, on big tech, on the platforms, for anything that could cause distress, which is a very subjective term. I mean, I got distressed when I didn't have the right coffee this morning. So, indeed. You know, is it, is it, what do we mean by causing distress? And for things you can say legally... Uh, but they might be construed as being harmful. And judging by what's just happened with you, we can see it's very subjective and very relative. If it's certain keywords, if it's certain issues, my understanding is, uh, and I I'm a bit of a free speech absolutist, not a bit, I am one, right? Because I think you can only really get to the bottom of things if you can discuss them, show shoddy and bad ideas to be what they are by illuminating them and trust that you can convince people. But when you give up on those ideas that you can convince people and you think everyone's evil or toxic, then you want to shut things down. And your point about asking questions, I really think it's a huge problem. And people, you know, your, the campaign to reinstate Tony Hinton, hashtag reinstate, was huge, right? I mean, you were on holiday. I don't I think you, and you weren't on there. No, I didn't really know what was going on. <laughs> but, yeah. but it kicked off in a big way, right? Mm. You've got a lot of people that were very upset. And even some people who don't agree with you, <clears throat> very Exactly. It was great that they got involved and they said, look, I don't agree with some or, or maybe yeah. even all of what Tony says. Not maybe not all, but um, but that, I mean, that's the spirit of research. From the point of view of you being involved in medicine for 30 years and science, because often science, the term is used a lot. We've seen it in the past, heretics, other scientists, how they were presented when they said that. And what's your, how do you see where we are currently now and this thing about if you put things out and what we just had the last two years with what's happened with COVID, what's your take on where we're at with things? Well, let's go back to the Middle Ages and the accepted science for medicine was things like leeches. And if we'd have just carried on with the accepted science and if people with new ideas had not been listened to and those ideas tested, we'd still just be using leeches. In fact, we do still use leeches in a very small proportion of things for sort of like cleaning wounds and stuff. Oh. Um, but we have a few more things in our, in our bag now than just leeches. Um, so science is about argument. It's about testing the arguments. And actually one of the things I find so sad is I try to discuss these issues with some of my medical colleagues and often their answer is they don't want to get into an argument. And I said, well, actually, argument and discussion about these uh, facts or theories is how we move forward and how we come to the correct decisions. So, for instance, if we go back to lockdown, there was a lot of dissenting voices, including mine and yours, about lockdown. But we were ignored. We were ridiculed. Um, at that stage, we could almost get no media exposure at all. So the problem is all of the information was coming from one side and there was no appreciation of what the possible risks might be of lockdown. Of course, the government said a long, long time ago 
they had done a risk assessment and they were going to publish it. To my knowledge, it has still not been published. Although you read some of the mainstream press now and you see these downsides of lockdown in children's education, in cancer, in NHS waiting lists, you see examples of that in the newspapers and on the TV now every week. And there's a very interesting narrative over, you know, all this stuff about the ambulances not being able to get to calls quick enough because they can't unload their patients at A&E, because A&E's full, because the hospital's full, because they can't get patients out, some of them to social care or care homes. But then they don't go that last step. They do say the care homes have a, a very severe lack of staff. But the one thing that then isn't mentioned is that part of that lack of staff, maybe 100,000, is because they brought in mandates for vaccinations for care home staff. They then had to drop them. The government claims that that only lost 40,000 staff, but that's just the 40,000 that left before the, when the mandate actually came in. Right. If you look at the previous few months from when the mandate was announced that it was coming in, that was a further 60,000 staff. Wow. Out of about 700,000 staff, 100,000 out of 700,000 is a huge is. drop, you know, proportion. And they were already probably down 100,000 before that. So, I mean, I think that those media have been told that that bit, they're not to mention. It's they must it's, know. It's not that they don't know. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because this is a big discussion amongst everyone. We've got so much to cover, and I'm so excited to be here sitting talking to you. Uh, I'm nervous we're not going to get it all in. But, I mean, people say this about the media. I mean, one thing, though, in the last 20 years or so, the media has uh, become obsessed with celebrity, has reduced the amount of full, in-depth investigative journalism, both in terms of documentaries and in terms of broadsheet journalism. We've had um, embeds at war that get press releases directly from uh, from the military rather than the kind of cappers of the past or Hemingways who'd go behind enemy lines and take footage. I mean, there are some, Vice, interestingly, and Al Jazeera did a bit of that differently, but there was a kind of... And, and we've had Ofcom announcements, right, with, with what yes. happened with, with COVID. But whether it's... The fact that they've just become lazy, a lack of investigative journalism, a kind of almost journalist uh, journalism of attachment. So they go with it, like whether it's a particular issue on the environment or whether it's for or against Brexit. Or we've seen now it is true that newspapers have historically been a bit like that. There've been some on what was called the left and the right. But I'm wondering whether it's laziness and going along with things because the, the the same accusation that's been made against the media has been made against the medical establishment and yes. doctors and they're, they're like, how, well, how can people who are so smart who've trained for so long not ask basic questions, right, or just go along with certain things? I mean that, and it might be that the answer is, you know, well they all agree with it. But I mean, so I do want to talk about the media, but I'd ask you about that. I mean, what's your yeah. view on what's happened there? I think as um, the medical profession goes, I think medicine has become much more protocol driven rather than individual doctors and patients discussing what is right and what are the best options for that particular patient. Um, I never actually put a treatment onto a patient. I give them the options. 
and I leave it for them to decide what is best for them because it could be exactly the same condition in two different patients, but they may choose two completely different options depending on all their other circumstances. But so much of medicine now is just protocol driven without thinking through the individual patient. Um, I think there's this problem, if we go back to the media, I think there is some is laziness. It's very nice and easy to get a, hand, a government handout and just print out the quotes from that. I think some, both in the media and the medical profession, particularly if you're working in the NHS, which is a huge monopoly employer, and most doctors working in the NHS, that is probably 95% of their income. And lots of NHS trusts, for instance, will have rules that you are not allowed certainly to speak to the media without going through their press office, even though you're just giving your own personal views. I, I did have an issue at the two hospitals that I currently work at. Um, I was on Twitter then, and over one weekend, there was a huge pylon of trolls um, putting very nasty messages and stuff. But not only were they messaging me, they were tweeting through to the two hospitals I worked at. Right. And they were also emailing the two hospitals I worked at. And I got called in for meetings at both hospitals with the chief executive and the medical director. Um, my son referred to them as meetings without coffee, <laughs> which I thought was very good. But I, I, I have to give it to them that they were both very fair and... Um, they wouldn't let me see the complaints, but the gist of it was there were actually no specific complaints contradicting anything that I'd said on Twitter. They were complaints that I was allowed to say anything on Twitter. That was the bottom line. They didn't want me speaking out. Not they disagreed with this or they disagreed with that because, of course, then you can put the evidence forward. And I'm, and I'm always happy to do that on social media to bring forward the evidence and have discussion. On Twitter, half the people I followed used to be people that I disagreed with, right. be that on Brexit or COVID or lots of other issues, because you want that to and fro flow of ideas. And that's how we come out with the best answers. So anyway, at these, at these meetings, what we, what we came up with is that they wanted me to make clear on my social media that they were my private views, which actually I'd already done, um, not to mention at all any connection with the two hospitals, which I never did. Um, one of the hospitals actually went so far as to put a little disclaimer on the bottom of my bio on their website to say, we understand Mr. Hinton has a large um, following on social media and his views are his own and don't represent the hospital. And from their point of view, I, I saw their point. They they felt that as a business, not necessarily themselves personally, but as a business, particularly a healthcare business, they had to be seen to support the government line, whatever it was, whether they themselves individually agreed with it or not. And I, I did see that difference and saw their difficulties so we came to an amicable arrangement but it was interesting that there were there were no particular complaints about what I said it was the fact that I was allowed to say it and and I think like me being thrown off Twitter last week 
I don't take that in any way personally. I don't think it's even so much aimed at me. It's aimed at keeping other people quiet because other groups that I'm in with and we discuss these things, a few other people have been removed as well. And lots of other people have said they've really reduced what they're saying and are far more careful. I mean, I was self-censoring, I would say, on Twitter already and being careful how you word things and stuff. But you shouldn't have to be looking over your shoulder. I mean, I'm a bit of a free speech absolutist like yourself. I would say, unless what you're saying is like threatening violence or encouraging someone to do something illegal, if it's just that somebody doesn't like it, well, they can come back and have the discussion. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we have to remember that the things that were most offensive have led to the most amount of freedom. So uh, women having the vote or, or exactly. adult men who don't have property, uh, yeah. the civil rights, black people having the vote in America and, 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 and everywhere. I mean, the whole thing that was very offensive to some yes. quarters uh, at every juncture in order to get any kind of change whatsoever, some people have had to be offended. And if we have the idea that saying things that upset certain people's sensibilities can't be said, and worse than can't be said, it gets taken down, you lose your job for, or you get, you know, in your private life attacked. And this is one of the concerns, right? It's not even about, just, as you say, it's very chilling, the idea that people try and target people's livelihoods and their careers and what they call cancelling. And not really, you know, in a way, the, the, the word together, but is the inspiration, aspiration yeah. about bringing people together. But if you were to say, if your message would be to people, the people you disagreed with, because what you said about listening to one another, I feel today there's a lot of shrill finger pointing. People often forget that we're fellow citizens uh, and that we can discuss ideas. And, you know, in the end, we're all part of a society and we all probably want similar things, right? But this idea that people Absolutely. are evil. What would you, how would you go about talking to people who really disagreed and think about the, the point about being able to have these discussions, the message that you want to, you'd like to get out about that? You know, how, how can we do this better so that we get to listen and hear one another? Yeah. Well, well, one of the things that concerns me is that there, there is a bit of a divide um, pushed by a few people on both sides of vaccinated people versus unvaccinated people. Now, I'm somebody now that is pretty much completely against these vaccines for anybody. It's a completely different variant. This vaccine doesn't work for this variant anyway. I'm not that sure that it worked that well in the first place. Maybe it did save a few very elderly, very ill people who were at severe risk. Now, I speak as someone that took two doses of Pfizer. And some people, when they find that out there, they're aghast. And they just think I was stupid or mad or whatever. And I sort of say that partly to just give the message that I'm in no way anti-vax. I'm still called anti-vax, but I'm not anti-vax. I'm anti this particular vaccine for certain groups. So, for instance, anybody that's already had COVID, you don't need this vaccine. You've got better immunity than from the vaccine. Any child does absolutely not need this vaccine. Um, children are hardly affected by COVID at all. If we look at some of the more recent data just out of Australia, they looked at the likelihood of catching COVID after boosters and they found that people were catching COVID again 
four weeks after their booster. This is with the BA5 Omicron, which is so transmissible. Um, I had COVID for the first time about three weeks ago, which will have been the BA5. I had a little bit of a blocked nose for two days. My sense of smell went for about 12 hours. That was it. Would I take a vaccine for something that was going to do that? No, I wouldn't. The reason I took my vaccines is that way back in January and March of 2021, when I took mine, it's difficult to go about how many years it's been going on now. <laughs> um, I had long discussions with my son, who's also a doctor, and, and we, we looked as much as we could into both the Pfizer and the AstraZeneca. And we both said, this is like really weird stuff. This has never been injected into people before. You know, it could do things with your genetics and stuff. You know, it's RNA. It's similar to DNA. Um, we've got no long-term data. But in the end, we took it because we were being told it was our duty as a doctor because it was going to protect our patients. And I'd say it is the duty of a doctor to protect their patients. Absolutely. But we now know it doesn't protect your patients because you can still catch it and you can still pass it on. So that was false, although we didn't know that at the time. The second reason is that I don't really remember Matt Hancock spouting on about the 15 million jabs to freedom. Yeah. And of course, that was going to be seven and a half million people, two jabs each. And it was just going to be medical staff, very elderly people, people with certain illnesses, people in care homes. And that was it. And once those were done, There'd be no need for any more lockdowns. All our freedoms would just come back and that would be the finish of it. And basically myself and Alex said, well, you know, who knows what might happen, but let's get on with it, take one for the team sort of thing. And it's all over more quickly. But that was false. And the reason that was false, I think, was pure politics. Because if you look where the government were before the start of the vaccination programme, they were really starting to go down. They were starting to dip down just below Labour because people were fed up of all these lockdowns and stuff. They had enough. They were only kept going by the possibility this vaccine was coming and that was going to end everything. Then the vaccine started. And the more and more they vaccinated, you can almost look at a graph of the number of vaccines going up and the popularity of the government going up. You can almost put one on top of the other, literally. And that they're two lines and they saw that as they kept vaccinating it was more and more popular and no doubt they did focus groups on it and stuff and the information that i got back is that people just thought it was a very good idea so it went from those first four groups down to everybody over 60 everybody over 50 and then people started telling me they're going to do kids i said no they'll, they'll never do kids i don't believe it and matt hancock stood up in parliament didn't he yeah and he said no, we will never vaccinate children. This vaccine has not been designed for children. It's never been properly tested on children. Uh, children don't need it because they don't suffer COVID in any bad way. And they lied about that. I can't remember was he still health secretary by the time they started vaccinating children. I'm not sure. Um, but actually, if you go back to what the JCVI said, you know, the UK vaccine um, uh, advisors, if you like, They've never really recommended vaccines for children for health grounds. For the teenagers, um, what they said was that there was no strong case for it, but they would leave it 
back to the chief medical officers and stuff, maybe there was educational reasons. So they sort of washed their hands of it, really. And the chief medical officers came back and said, yes, it was going to save an average of 15 minutes school time for all these kids to get vaccinated because they wouldn't be testing and being sent home all the time. They still carried on testing and sending them home all the time. And one of my colleagues made the very good argument that they might save 15 minutes of school time, but even if they're not ill for a day after the vaccine, they're going to lose half an hour in the queue at school to get the vaccination. So that just didn't wash. And then when it went down even lower to the kids down to five, the JCVI stuff is even more wishy-washy. It's worded something like, it's a non-urgent open offer to parents, but it shouldn't interfere with the normal vaccination programs. Now, to me, that is like saying, you know, if you give this vaccine to little Johnny and little Johnny gets a bad problem from it, don't come back to us complaining because we never actually should you said you should take it at all. We just said it was an open offer, to, you know, make your own mind up sort of thing. Um, and I think they're trying to sort of step back from it as much as they can. I mean, why um, do you think it went from it will only be for adults of certain groups? Your point about Because the of such a political popularity. Well, even for children as well. Because they'd run out of everybody else by then. That was the next logical place to go. I mean, the, Without, all the adults have been done. Yeah. I mean, the, the still, there's still a huge number of people in this country that haven't had a single dose. Yeah. That probably are at least a third of adults haven't had a booster. Um, I've not had a booster because by that stage, I come to the conclusion that it, it doesn't work properly. It's pointless. Um even my dad, who's 89, my dad was pestered in the spring about a fourth dose. And I speak to him most days on the phone. And um, he said, Anthony, he said, um, I'm not sure what to do, he said, but what do you think? He said, if three doses haven't worked, why would a fourth work? And I said, Dad, I think you might be onto something. He hasn't taken it. Mm. Um, he has had COVID. He had a bit of a cold symptoms for a while. One of the things um, that this has done as well is, um, I mean, obviously, look, let's, many people would say that the success of the vaccine rollout is what got us out of the situation. Um, it's certainly the position the government took. And um, it's important not to be in echo chambers and bubbles, right? Just because some, you know, I might think certain things, to assume that the majority of Britain thinks that is would be wrong. Um, it's also the case that some people were hesitant pre-COVID about the medical establishment generally. But the, yeah. the other thing is that it's now the case that there's more hesitancy about all the other procedures as well, because some people who've been looking at all of this yep. are like, we can't really trust what's going on. Yes. Because when you say something about one thing and then it becomes apparent that, well, it doesn't... The thing about protection, you say, what people now say is, well, it does protect you because it might limit the severe illness of death of the people that might get it, right? So that's the way they say it. But that's not what was said at the time, which is it will stop no. you getting it and spreading it and passing on to other people. So when that happens, you, you have an impact on trust on a number of areas. I mean, I wonder, in your conversations with fellow colleagues and you know people in the medical establishment, are people saying things off the record versus on the record? I mean, obviously there's things like the Great Barrington Declaration and now... It's less shrill, but as you say, you've been taken off Twitter for asking questions. Uh, you know, how do those conversations go with people? What do, you, what do you think the 
Is there a sense of more broadly what colleagues and people in the medical establishment that you think, you know, what, what they think and if it, has it changed much and all of that? Sadly, I think most just don't want to think about it. Um, I think they're very pleased that it looks like it's all coming to an end. And I don't believe it's come to an end because of vaccinations. Not at all. Because actually, until recently, we'd got the highest COVID numbers in the UK we've ever had. I was at a concert last night in Brixton. There were about 2,000 people in there. And I was speaking to the guy next to me. I said, isn't it fantastic? I said, we've got the highest COVID numbers we've ever had. Everybody's in here, can't see a single mask. We're all having a fantastic time and nobody gives us stuff. And that's exactly how it should be because it's like a cold. What's finished this, I would say, I went on a number of programs. As soon as I found out about what was happening with Omicron in South Africa, I have a, um, a scientific Zoom meeting with lots of colleagues around the world pretty much every week on a Tuesday afternoon. And about three or four of those colleagues are from South Africa. So we get these early reports from what's happening in South Africa. And South Africa was the first place that identified the Omicron variant. It may not have originated there, but they've got very good um, genetic sequencing, a bit like the UK. I'm, I'm not quite sure why it is so good in South, but it is. But they have very good genetic sequencing in South Africa. So they often pick up these things early because there was a previous South African one, if you remember, that was also picked up there first. And what they were saying to us was that there's no need to panic. Basically, compared to the Delta, they were getting far fewer patients coming to hospital. Um, of the ones that came in, 90% fewer needed oxygen. Of those, 90% less went to intensive care. And of those, 90% less died. It was like a totally different disease. And... I went on lots of programs here and the, 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 the sort of arguments from the other side were, were always, oh, but it might not be the same here. It might not be the same here. And I thought, well, well, why wouldn't it be the same here? And they were saying, oh, because, you know, in, in, in South Africa, um, that, that they, they've got people with HIV and they haven't got such good health care. And I said, well, that should mean that their results are even worse because they've got a population with lots of, immune problems with HIV, probably not treated very well. Um, they haven't got such good access for lots of the population to good health care as we've got here. The results should be even better here for Omicron. And so my take was, I was going around saying, actually, the real vaccine for this disease is one where we don't want to have to inject it. We want everybody to be able to take it. And we want very few side effects. And I said, that's Omicron. That's our vaccine. And actually, you know, a few weeks later, he was obviously listening to me because <laughs> Bill Gates said exactly the same thing on a stage at some business meeting somewhere. He said it was very disappointing that actually Omicron seemed to be having a better effect as a vaccine than the vaccines they'd produced. So what the, yeah, I mean, the thing is that people will say as well, and we can go back on this, that the reason... You're saying that the reason is because of natural immunity, but there has been a yeah. significant take-up of the vaccine in the UK. And so many people who are at that concert will have had 
at least the first two <clears throat> vaccinations. And there will, but loads of people that have even had a third booster, a fourth booster, are still catching COVID. Yes. Yeah. Well, and you know, so that some, tells you something. Yeah, yeah. And then what people then say is then they say, yeah, but it protects the really... <laughs> you get a tautological... But you get you, you people that say, but, but the really it, was, it prevents the more serious... And, and deaths in the higher categories. I've had yes, this conversation do, with it, my mum. Yes, it may do in a few people. But your point yes, could be right do. about it's also for previous incarnations. And Absolutely. But can I ask you a question? Because I don't understand a lot of this. So okay. I, I usually talk about freedom and rights yeah, yeah. and liberties because I think they're really important. Because yeah. even if something's really deadly, <clears throat> we still have a duty to think about how much we're going to sacrifice in terms of our freedom and our rights and liberty for how long and what basis and obviously the the risk versus the decision making it has to be transparent and open but some people say that hasn't even been isolated i've never really understood this but like sars sars part of the sars um series of different yes. uh, uh, viruses is that true no i believe it has and it's been isolated and demonstrated i think covid is sars covid 2 i believe is a real virus um, I think increasingly the evidence is that came out of a lab in China. Yeah. Whether the origins of that are from that lab or even from American work many, many years ago, there's arguments even where SARS-CoV-1 came from. Obviously, many countries, including our own, will have all sorts of nasty things. You know, we'll have it important down. Um, it, it, in an ideal world, you'd say no one should be experimenting with these vaccines and diseases, trying to sort of weaponize them. I suppose the argument that you would make for it is that if other countries are doing it, do you not need to do it to be able to develop defenses against those things? But of course, there's always a risk that something like that can escape. There's, there's no, I mean, the, the last foot and mouth outbreak in the UK came from a drain from Porton Down. <laughs> it was a drain that wasn't properly filtered properly. And that's where the outbreak was traced back to. Mm. Um, so there's no system. You know, it, it could well be that in the West, our labs are a bit more secure than that one in Wuhan. But there is no system that is absolutely 100% secure. When I first went to medical school, that was in Birmingham in 19... Um, <laughs> the year before, um, Birmingham University was one of only four places in the world that had the smallpox virus that they studied. And... There was a lady that caught smallpox because there was a problem with the ventilation. She was a secretary in the room below the smallpox lab and she caught smallpox. There's nothing they could do. I mean, basically, it was a, a death sentence. It took her two weeks to die. Wow. Horrible death. In fact, the professor in charge of the lab shot himself. Oh in his own uh, uh, hut, in his shed in his garden a week before she died. When she was died, uh, her body was just wrapped in sort of copious amounts of plastic, I think lime, 
concrete around the coffin and that's what she was buried in in a concrete coffin and that was the i think she's the last person known to have died from smallpox because of because in the wild it had been eradicated then mm. there were just i think there was a lab in america a lab and obviously in the in the in the ussr as it was then birmingham and there was probably something in china i think there were four places where they had this virus so we've got to hear about all these things. I mean, I'm sitting here, it's like a horror story, horror movie. So we'd have to low, lighten the tone a little bit. Yeah. So okay. um, I'm terrified. We've had two years and now I'm getting even more scared. But um, we ha- it's something that's happening, isn't it? Because you, we see this monkeypox and it was ridiculed by a lot of people. But whether it's an well, attempt say, to nudge I'd, and push something. I'd but, say keep your trousers <laughs> on and you don't need to worry about monkeypox. Yeah. No hanging about with carcasses in Africa too much. Um, and also, um, though, even in the discussions about the weather recently, there's this kind of um, sense of a mixture of the nudge moment, but also this fear porn. Yes. And I'm not sure that it's... I mean, some people are convinced it's just all created and there's some people sitting there going, right, now let's do this bit, press this button. What strikes me is the lack of plans, the lack of plans, uh, the lack of clear ideas by and the increasing bureaucratic technocratic nature of all leaders which is why so many things look similar and it's sort of reified it's reflected i think in many of the things we see at places like the wef and who and a lack of strong principles and leadership even this government when it started on one course and had it pursued that a bit like Sweden did somewhat a bit, yes. then things would have been very different. But it came. It was a la- now, some people say, well, that was all part of a plan. It, it becomes everything's part yeah. of a plan. Boris going. Uh, but the thing is, I wonder, but there is a thing that's happening that as our obsession with fear, right? Our obsession with that we're at risk of everything. Yeah. And on the one hand, you've got all these modelers standing ready, certain kinds of modelers to tell us how much it's doom-lidden. And, but not so long ago, there was a sense that you go out in the world and, and you make good and you make the best of the circumstances and things were tough sometimes and they were good and, and, and you, we wouldn't be preoccupied all the time with terrible things. And often things were much more challenging in the past. I mean, how do you see all of that? Like how, what's changed recently and how much the last two years has contributed to that? Well, well, I'm trying to do two things. I am trying to fight for certain things that I believe in, which is you know partly why I had that Twitter account. But also I'm trying to live my own life and with my family to the fullest I possibly can. So for instance, we continued to travel as much as we possibly could during the pandemic. And in fact, I have to say traveling recently, it's far worse than it used to be during the pandemic. During the pandemic, the, the airports were almost empty. Um, half the, you know, Some of the planes were half empty and they had to tell people you can't move seats because if everybody comes to the front, the plane will plummet to the ground. Um, so, I think, you know, life is for living and, and no matter what's going on in the background and what you think other nefarious people may be up to, whether that's correct or not, um, I'm quite sceptical about most of that. I, th- I, I think, for instance, the World Economic Forum probably thinks they have a lot more influence than they really do. They may have some influence over certain politicians so if we look, for instance, what's going on in Canada, that looks pretty creepy, I have to say. Um, but that'll only last as long as the Canadian people are willing to put up with that bloke in charge. And, event- and, and he, he very cleverly called an election very early 
before things got worse and worse and worse. He only just scraped in. He got much, a much worse result than he did previously. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure he'd do so well if there was an election now. Um, and I'm sure by the time, you know, he's, I assume he's got four or five years, a similar system to here, before he's got to go again. And, I mean, if he wasn't got rid of, I'd be amazed. It looks like if we look, look at the United States, for instance, a lot of these things are involved in politics between Democrats and Republicans and things like, you know, is, is Mr. Trump going to run again and things like that. And, and almost a lot of these mistakes that were made, like we couldn't use ivermectin, we couldn't use hydroxychloroquine, a lot of them were things that immediately you couldn't do because President Trump had mentioned them. Anything that he'd mentioned, it must be wrong. Well, I'm afraid he didn't think those things up. Those were things he was told by medical advisors. Um, they're both well-known drugs and that there's a lot of evidence for both of them. And certainly I saw no reason to ban those sorts of treatments it should have been up to physicians and patients to with discussion and consent to decide what they wanted to do um so i, th I think we'll see you know these midterms in the united states that are coming up in the autumn um i think probably the democrats will lose control of um you know the scent that the, the, the houses that there um and that puts mr biden in a very difficult position i mean Talking about the vaccine and stuff, of course, he's someone that has supposedly had four doses and now he's tested positive for COVID. Um, of course, there are also questions about how accurate these tests are. Um, you know, that the virus was from China, virtually all the PCR and lateral flow tests are from China. Um, you know, there's there's lots of things that there's you lots need of to questions think of. about the cycles but, uh, that they're done up if they're fit. For yes, purpose. absolutely. No, there's far too many fit. cycles. I mean, anything basically once you get above about twenty five, thirty, you're just picking up bits of dead virus. You're not picking up somebody that's infectious. And actually, I would say, you know, part of the problem with hospitals at the moment as well is they're still testing people coming in. Mm. Well, I would say. You don't need to. He hadn't used to test everybody for every respiratory virus that existed before they came to hospital before. And this now is just another one of those respiratory viruses. So it, now it isn't anything special anymore. Yeah. So now now I'm um, <laughs> pretty convinced that this particular podcast is going to be pulled down from a lot of the platforms. Okay. And you're going to join the ranks of Peter McCulloch and Robert Malone. You can edit You it. have joined the ranks of the... of the. Uh, no, no. Well, we're not going to necessarily edit that because the, the point is that um, your point about self-censorship and about the chilling effect on free speech that this has is a big problem in mm, our estimation. Is. And we think that in this climate, there needs to be courage. Uh, it, Lord, it's unbelievable that today it, we saying that you need to be brave and have courage to speak freely. In the society where I grew up, which was supposedly based on the whole idea of freedom, yeah. right? We, I was always told, look, look over there in the Cold War, we're free. Exactly. Look at them, yeah. right? And it was true, right? You couldn't go, you couldn't have religious freedom across the Iron uh, mm. Wall, uh, you know, across the Berlin Wall, and the uh, you couldn't uh, have freedom of conscience. You can have freedom of speech. You had all sorts of secret police coming around mm. and now we've got a situation where we're nervous about having conversations about things because of the idea. I mean, it's pretty much this: if we state what it is, 
that people are stupid and dangerous. And if they hear certain things, they will go out and do dangerous things and act stupidly. And it's such a disgusting view about our fellow citizens. Exactly. People that actually created parliament historically, people in the English Civil War, if you think about all the things that transformed society, the American Constitution, the idea of people uh, being engaged from the Renaissance to the Enlightenment, all of those things that transform things. And yet today uh, it's be quiet, silence, and then we're nervous. So we're not going to... Uh, take, not have those things, and we'll see how they play out. Just, I mean, some other things are happening as well, right? So you mentioned this in terms of ongoing, the impacts of the mandate in social care and elsewhere. We're also seeing beds fall in many hospitals at the same level that they were actually in the last lockdown. In the summer, we're seeing uh, restrictions still in many places. We're seeing masks being reintroduced. Yeah. And in many... <laughs> This is another one of those things that masks in non-surgical environments, like in administrative and elsewhere. Uh, and, you know, if any evidence anywhere has really demonstrated much, perhaps masks is the most, the best example of that. But how do you see things now? Like, I mean, the counter to all of this is that there have been many people saying things. There's been more stuff in the mainstream press, you know, like if I'm, you know, in newspapers and we had things about the mandates on Good Morning Britain, yes. big no, BBC No, things are changing, I would say. They you know, are. and to yeah. what extent do you think that, and also the, the issue of GPs is also still a problem at the moment, right? But yes. why A&E so backed up. But how do you see now? Because well, we're going into a situation where we're in the summer now and these things are happening. Yep. People are talking nervously about it. But as you rightly say, people being affected is a good thing for, for the mo most part. Yes, they get it is. Their immunity. But we're heading towards autumn. We know we've got a cost of living, cost of lockdown crisis mm. and the NHS Every year for the last 15, we've been told it's crisis point, right? And we know that all sorts of things have lingered. They haven't ruled out uh, things like passes, vaccine passes, that we know there's digital ID now. They have not ruled out restrictions and impositions in the future. How do you see it? And how do you see about what people can do, all of us? I mean, you've, you've shone a light and you've led in many ways in your area. I all that courage and bravery. You've demonstrated that. I mean, what would you... What's your thoughts about where we're going and also what people should and could do? Well, I suppose a lot depends now, doesn't it, on who is selected as our new prime minister. And of course, rather than us all having a say in a general election, it's going to be 160,000 Conservative Party members. Um, I feel quite uncomfortable. I mean, I've, I've, I've not been happy with what Boris has done. Because I don't think he's been doing proper conservative policies. I was I was very pleased that the very first press conference they had before the lockdown, because they were talking about herd immunity and they just wanted to squash the sombrero. They realised they couldn't stop it, but they just wanted to keep the numbers a little bit lower, not get such a big peak, let people get immune, a bit like the sort of Swedish model. And I thought, wow, this is a much, yeah, that's, that's exactly the right thing that they should be doing. And then, of course, they were spooked by that stuff that Professor Ferguson brought out with these uh, predictions of what was it, half a million deaths within like six months or something. Um, I don't understand why people listen to him because he's always got everything wrong by factor of 10, maybe 100. Yeah. Um, the mo All done from this modelling. 
Um, a bit like the climate stuff's all done from modeling. And of course, eventually the code for that modeling was released, but the original code that was used has never been released. The code that was released was code that, strangely enough, had been all tidied up by a whole load of people from Microsoft. And people that saw the tidied up code said, it still looked horrendous. So what the actual code used for the model was, who knows really? But it's going to depend, isn't it? Who's the prime minister? Who he chooses for the cabinet? So, you know, heaven forbid, yeah, he or she chooses for the cabinet. I mean, uh, let, let, let's say we've got Jeremy Hunt and Matt Hancock back in the cabinet. Well, <laughs> I said to you to stop terrifying me. <laughs> yeah, sorry. They're absolutely going to be pushing for more lockdowns. Now, I came here today on the train in the tube. Again, I'd say on each carriage, there was probably maybe one person wearing a mask. You know, people have had enough. People want to be back to normal. And it comes down to how much people are willing to accept at the end of the day, you know. And I remember saying last autumn when they were moving that way again. And of course, the first thing was they started to reintroduce these mask things. I've never worn a mask outside work. Not ever. They're a complete nonsense. There is no scientific basis for them. In fact, they probably spread bacterial and fungal infections because we all wear horrible dirty ones we pull out of our pocket or our handbag and touch them on the face and in and out, in and out. And, you know, we don't take a nice clean mask, pop it on without touching it with our hands and change it every four hours, which is what you'd need to do to get any benefit at all. And even a big study in Denmark where they did that, it still showed no difference. So the masks are just complete nonsense. But the masks are a test. So basically... Come this autumn, if they start saying, we need to start wearing masks now on public transport, uh, it's not the law, but it's a mandate. I mean, a mandate means it's not the law. I mean, it's either the law or it's not the law. You know, a mandate means nothing. But if people start doing that in sufficient numbers and in the supermarket and stuff, then the next thing is, it'll be, we need to bring the vaccine passport back. Because again, last autumn, it was the masks first, if 90% of people hadn't worn the masks, they wouldn't have gone any further because they would have known it wasn't going to work. People have had it. It's a test. So people have to make up their own mind. They, they can see what's happening. You know, the vast majority of people now will know someone that has had COVID after having had three doses of vaccine. So they know there's no point getting more and more vaccines. Um, They'll know that the vast majority of people recently that have had COVID, it's like a cold. They probably had it themselves. Um, so we should treat it like a cold. We, we shouldn't test and say, well, for that cold, you've got to do all these particular restrictions. But for all these other colds that haven't shown positive, you just do what you like. If you feel really ill, if you think you're going to spread whatever you've got to loads of people, stay at home for a couple of days. That's all. That's all you need to do. It, it's as simple as that. We don't need to be testing people to see if they got this one specific virus because it's no different now how we would deal with it to lots of other colds and probably not as bad as a flu. Mm -hmm. We'll probably have more problems with the flu this winter than COVID. 
And uh, as people will know, we've got uh, a campaign, Acts of the Tax, which is all about the cost of living, cost of lockdown crisis. But when this comes out, yes. we'll, we'll also have got a campaign that uh, is called What's the Plan? Uh, which is where is the plan for the NHS and protect the public? Because we had a lot of discussions in the past with all these nudgy, um, pushy strap lines. But what's the plan uh, and where is it? Because... You know, the resource question, and there is a resource question, right, you know, for lots of reasons, an ageing demographic and yeah. less beds and cuts as well, but also in terms of bureaucracy and a range of other things. There's a big question, yeah. as you said, about our, the biggest employer, I think, in the world or second biggest in the yeah, world. Probably. I, th I think yeah, probably. I think it used to be second after the uh, Chinese, Russian army. China, yeah, the Chinese it, when, army. When, when it was USSR. Right, okay. Yeah. So... We have a number of questions about that, but the question is, should our policy, in our policy repertoire, bringing in things to uh, impose restrictions uh, and taking away freedoms, or should it be solutions to the resource question? Uh, and, you know, that's... I uh, uh, I'm sceptical even for the NHS. It is a resource question. Um, the problem is how the resources are allocated. Um, it appears to me that... I mean, for instance, a lot of the extra COVID money, the numbers of administrators in the Department of Health doubled over two years, doubled. They spent £450 million just on consulting services for test and trace. The test and trace, I think, came to £37 billion. And actually, test and trace, if you're trying to trace people with a disease and track their contacts once you get over maybe two or three hundred people it becomes impossible it's pointless you've lost it then because you're following so many people that have contacted so many other people by the time you've traced them they've already contacted another five people you know you can do it for things like tb that are more difficult to spread um, you could probably do it for this monkeypox um, where the symptoms are more obvious and you've had fewer contacts and they're particular groups of people. But and, and then they do a thing called ring vaccination. So, for instance, with your monkeypox, that, that there isn't really a properly developed specific monkeypox vaccine. What they do is they use the old smallpox vaccine. Right. So if you're if, if you've got somebody that's got it and they and you trace 10 contacts, They'll offer those 10 contacts all to be vaccinated for smallpox, which has some degree of protection against monkeypox. And you hope that you've vaccinated that group and then you've stopped it, then it doesn't go beyond. But particularly sort of COVID now, loads of people will be spreading COVID now, not even know they've got it. And actually people get horrified by that, but that's a good thing, not a bad thing. If you think you've got a virus and you get and it, and it splits into two variants in a person and one variant is really nasty, makes you feel terrible and you're in bed for a week and you've been sick and you've got terrible headaches. You don't go out anywhere. You hardly spread it to anyone at all. If the variant you got, the new variant, is much more weedy, but it spreads much more easily, you might have a bit of a sniffle. You go out to work, you go on the tube, you go on the train. You spread it to loads of people. But it doesn't really matter. It's just giving them a bit of immunity. So, so generally what will happen 
with the vast majority of viruses is as they develop and the new variants come and change, it, it's inevitably the ones that cause less harm that spread because those are the people able to go out and spread it. The people that are really ill, you know, there won't be many people that got Delta badly that went out and spread it a lot. And that's why it spreads a lot less than Omicron because yeah. Omicron, off you go out and you do all your stuff. So um, you, you do strike me as being someone, in spite of all of this, that's always quite upbeat and optimistic. And you get out there, you're at concerts, yeah. <laughs> whether it's at the Royal Albert Hall or in Brixton, yeah. uh, and then you're travelling, uh, you go on holiday. You're out there in the world, right? So it's yes. not like all doom and gloom. It's not. I, and I, you I, think I, that, I would say, yeah. you know, I'm not a religious person. I would say I've got one chance to be here. And I want to make the best of that. And, you know, what, what, one of the reasons I, I particularly came out very, very strongly um, on Brexit, I'm happy to say which side if people want to know, I came out very, very strongly against kids' vaccinations. And I was determined to do that no matter how it affected my job. Because both on the Brexit thing and the kids' vaccination thing, I just wanted to know in my own mind that even even if I failed and couldn't change anything, I'd done everything possible I could do individually to try to make sure we got the right answers on those things. And that's as much as anyone can do. But also you've got to live your life. You know, there's, there's more to life than Twitter, that's for sure. <laughs> and you need to have a balance in your life. You know, to me, you know, my family is very important. Um, I was there with my wife last night. She was going absolutely crazy at the prodigy. Um, <laughs> well, we had a great time. Fantastic. You know, um, Dr. Tony Hinton, uh, showing courage and bravery and fortitude. And uh, I want to really thank you for coming on today. Uh, at Together Talks podcast, we're part of the Together Association and people can become members. We'd love them to do that. Um, you'll also, as uh, Tony said, be able to catch him on Ghetto if you want to go see him. We'll be putting this on all platforms. We'll see what happens uh, when we do that. And you can now catch us across uh, many of the platforms, including Spotify uh, and Google and Apple Podcasts. Dr. Tony Hinton, thank you so much for coming in today. Um, and, you know, carry on being brave uh, and being out there. It's a pleasure, Alan. I thank you for everything you're doing. These are great.